Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Let's all stand together here at this campus anyway. Wherever campus join us over in Stevens Point, a lot of people online as well. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, the truth that comes from your word. We thank you, Lord, that uh, uh, it gives us strength, direction. We ask for the uh, power of the Holy Spirit to make it so real to us and empower us so that we can walk as a victorious Christians. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And at this campus, I think someone hands out a offering basket. I don't know. They were. <laughs> we have any ushers that work here? Does Bob work here? Hey, Bob, give Bob a hand. He's doubling his usher tonight. <clears throat> I don't know what you guys do over in point. And if anybody starts walking in your house with a bucket at home, I'd get very nervous. All right. We are in Acts, the uh, 16th chapter. We are following the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Paul and Barnabas were getting ready to go out on their missionary journey. They had a big fight over John Mark because John Mark had deserted them on a previous trip. Barnabas thought, you know, it's all right. Let's get over it. He wants to go with us again. Paul said, no way. He was a slacker. So there's a big fight. So Barnabas takes off and goes back the original way. And Paul and, and Silas now went up here. So they're coming up here, and they come all the way across here. They were trying to go different ways, but the Holy Spirit kept telling them no. They eventually wound up in Philippi, so that's where we are. Uh, we'll eventually read an epistle that Paul wrote to the Philippians. But uh, So he's at Philippi. He is sharing the gospel, and uh, there's a lady who's following him wherever he goes, just irritating. She's possessed of a demon. Uh, and she's able to foretell the future and stuff to people on whatever spiritist power she had. Paul finally gets so irritated, he casts the devil out of her. Well, the people who own the slave girl were freaked out because now they're not going to make any money. So they ramp up the crowd into a riot. They arrest Paul they, and Silas. Uh, they just beat them. Uh, the Bible says severely flogged and to throw them in jail. Um, Paul was really irritated by this, uh, uniquely so, because <laughs> he got beat up a lot. But for some reason, this one really ticked him off, I think, because of the status that he had as a Roman citizen. They weren't... And you can't just flog a, a Roman citizen and throw him in jail without a trial. Uh, he actually writes about this in his first letter to uh, his next letter to the uh, Thessalonians. He'll bring it up again how badly he was mistreated. And uh, he also gets ticked at him a little bit here. We'll see about that. Anyway, so he gets, they get the snot beat out of him. They throw him in prison. And, uh, and uh, we, talked, we ended last time at verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. We talked about how people are listening and watching our lives as Christians. And one of the greatest impacts we can have on people is simply to live a successful Christian life. When they see your life working and their life isn't working, that has a big impact on people. Uh, so they're all listening to this. These guys should be whining and complaining, but they're singing praises to God at midnight. And all of a sudden, verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prisons were shaken. At, at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Now that clearly was a divine thing. I guess you could make the argument that because of an earthquake, the doors would pop open, 
but there's nothing to explain why all of a sudden the chains fell off their arms. It's so like in the presence of them singing and praising God, the power of the Holy Spirit shows up and just kicks the snot out of the prison, knocks all the doors open, and boom, everyone's chains fall off. So this is like, wow. It's like a supernatural event that happens. Well, in verse 27, it says, the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors were open, he freaks, and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Why would he do that? Why would someone want to kill themselves? Because these people were really severe uh, to those who are given the charge of these prisoners. And if the prisoners get out under your watch, they kill you. And they kill you in the most brutal of ways and the slowest, most painful, tearing you to pieces kind of thing. You know, think the end of Braveheart where they disembowel the poor man. Uh, you know, so these guys knew, man, better to die by your own hand than to let these guys kill you because you'll die a lot less painful and a lot quicker if you just kill yourself. So right away, he reaches for a sword. He's going to kill himself because he knew what would be coming. And, but then Paul, it says in verse 28, Paul shouted out, don't harm yourself. We're all here. See, he thought everybody escaped. Well, by this point, the jailer's just blown away. He is aware of what's going on. He put these guys in prison. He hears them singing and praising. He falls asleep and he's wakened by the... Uh, uh, you know, the earthquake and everything. But he knew what was going on. He'd heard of their faith. And all of a sudden, this supernatural event happens. And the, so they say, man, don't hurt yourself. We're still here. And then the jailer calls for the lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So he immediately wants to convert to Christianity these guys have something I haven't gotten. And not only are they able to celebrate in the midst of horrible circumstances, God shows up, gives them a great favor, knocks the chains off their arms. I mean, this is a big deal to these people. And uh, this guy is stunned by it all. So he wants to convert. He wants what he's got, what they got. I want what you guys got, all right? So, and then they said, great, what must I do to be saved? And they say this in verse 31. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you, your household. Now, this is probably one of the most uh, misquoted verses in the scriptures. And uh, <laughs> I hardly ever hear it quoted properly. <laughs> this is often quoted as a promise that if you get saved, your whole family will get saved and not to disrupt those of you who cherish on this verse, but that is not what this verse says. It is not a promise that if you get saved, your whole family will get saved. This is most quoted over and over and over more times than you can count in evangelical churches and tell people to pray for your family and just claim that verse that if you get saved, your whole family will get saved. It is not a promise he didn't promise them that if he gets saved, everybody will get saved. He just said, man, what must I do to be saved? Well, believe in the Lord Jesus and you can be saved. You, your household, anybody who believes in the Lord Jesus can be saved. Having said that, you certainly can pray and should pray for your family and trust God. But it just goes against uh, sound theology to think that because you come to faith, that everybody you're related to will somehow automatically come to faith as well. It just doesn't work that way. 
All right? Again, not to discourage you for praying for your family. By all means, pray and be as, you know, I mean, it's, in fact, it literally goes against the teaching of Jesus where he said, don't think I've come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn father against son and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, which is probably an easy one. Uh, you know, so this, you know, your own enemies will be those of your own household. And then to come back later and say, well, the Bible promises that if you get saved, everybody is absurd. It is just absurd. <laughs> we need to misquote the Bible. And I'm stunned at how many people misquote that. I don't know. And if you hear somebody quote it, just smile. Don't get on them. Well, Pastor Mark says that's misquoted. Just shut up. Let people just leave them alone. <laughs> because you don't want to discourage people who are trying to trust God for something. All right? Uh, there's several verses in the Bible that are oftentimes greatly misquoted and out of, but this is probably the most blatant one that I can think of. Uh, there's a few others that are, that are out there. So anyway, that's all he's saying. How do I get saved? Well, you get saved by believing in the Lord Jesus. You, your whole household, anybody, your neighbors, Uncle Fred, anybody who will believe in the Lord Jesus can be saved. It doesn't mean if you get saved, everybody you're connected to will believe. It's just patently absurd. So then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, and who knows what hour, it was like midnight when all this started happening, uh, the jailer took them and washed their wounds because they had just been severely flogged. This is 2,000 years ago. When it says they were flogged, that's a bad day. When it says they were severely flogged, that's a really bad day. These were not empathetic people. These were pagans. You got out of line. They beat you mercilessly. And I can only imagine the condition of their backs. Uh, why didn't the Lord just heal him? I don't know. Sometimes he shows up, he heals people. Sometimes he shows up, they raise from the dead. Other times people get sick. Paul writes, Madhouse, remember to the Galatians, oh, Madhouse so sick. And, really? This great man, you know, who knows? Don't get discouraged. Sometimes God shows up in a great miraculous way. That's what you trust God for. Sometimes you got to suck it up. It is what it is, right? So uh, we always pray for the best. We always trust for the best. Uh, many people in the uh, New Testament, born-again believers, got sick and died. In fact, the Bible, we'll read about it as we get into the epistles. In fact, Paul starts explaining in places reasons why some of them died because of the way they were acting and, and bringing curses on their own lives. But, uh, you know, uh, so anyway. The miraculous thing was they got bust out of jail. If I were choosing for miraculous things, I'd choose for Maybe my back to be healed because <laughs> that had to hurt. But that's not what happened. So they get out, but he washes their wounds. And then, you know, he's talking to all these people. So immediately he, all his household were baptized. Again, if your household believes and is baptized, they will be saved. And that's what happened here. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So they all got saved. When it was daylight, the magistrates then sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. What men? Paul and Silas. All right, let those guys go. Well, the jailer told Paul, dude, I got good news. The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now leave. You can take your leave. Go in peace, man. Peace, brother. Go. Paul says to the officers, I ain't leaving. 
They beat us publicly without a trial. Even though we are Roman citizens, they threw us in a prison. Now they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. I love this, mainly because I'm a confrontational person by nature. This, and I often talk of this, this idea that Christians have to be these weak-limped, you know, people who just take whatever comes their way, and no matter what, just, I love everybody, and never, never confront anybody, is absurd, okay? Now, we're supposed to love people, and we have to forgive people, I get it, it doesn't mean we gotta just take it. Somebody say amen. amen. All right? You know... <laughs> go into a lot of versions of this, but no, we're not going to take it. You know, sometimes you fight back. Sometimes you kick back. You know, you know we, now we're supposed to show respect at whatever level to those that are in authority, but sometimes people in authority are out of their ever-loving minds. And as Christians, we can tell them to stuff it <laughs> in love. <laughs> This idea, no, 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 they just got to always take whatever. No, we don't. And Paul didn't either. Paul was rather a confrontational fellow. <laughs> Remember, we just read Galatians where he got mad at these guys and said, I hope you cut your wieners off and go to hell because <laughs> he was so mad at them. If you missed that, get the tape. Uh, or go on, we don't have tapes anymore. Go online and download it. But uh, there's another time, we'll read it. You know, Paul gets drug in front of the Sanhedrin and they slap him. And Paul didn't say, oh, well, you know, God bless you, brother. I just, he says, you big fat jerks, how dare you slap me? And then they told him, hey, that was the chief priest. And he goes, oh, okay, I didn't know it was the chief priest. So he backs off a little bit. But he, these guys were not these, you know, oh, la, 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 people who just let people push them around. Again, they love people. But so anyway, he's hacked. So he tells them, I'm not leaving here. You tell those guys to come down and they can beg us to leave. They can escort us out. Well, verse 38, the officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they freaked out. Cool, man, because you didn't mess with the Romans, all right? And the Romans were known to be rather severe <laughs> in their responses to people. So they freaked it says they were alarmed. They were very alarmed. And they came to appease them, which means they came and said, we're really, really sorry, and we didn't mean to do this to you. And then Paul's in our presence. Like, and they escorted them from the prison, as Paul demanded. So again, you certainly can take your rights as a, just because you're a believer doesn't mean you have to surrender your rights or all these other things and uh, just let people push you around. So he demanded they come and escort him out, and that's exactly what they did. And again, Paul will talk about this in his first letter just briefly, how ticked off he was and how these people treated him because it shouldn't have happened. And they requested them to please leave the city. <laughs> okay, we're sorry. We'll take you. Please go away. And then after Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and then they left. All right. So then they go to Thessalonica. So they're here at Philippi, and then they cruise along the coast, and they come to the city of Thessalonica. So 
when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphibolus and Apollonia, along the coast there, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So that's something that they had missed to a great degree. In the Old Testament, there were two, there was two pictures of the Messiah. One is the suffering Messiah, and the other is this butt-kicking, conquering Messiah. And of course, they chose to grab on to the butt-kicking, conquering Messiah because they hated the Romans. They were under the thumb of the Romans, and uh, they were under-occupied, so they were looking for a Messiah. Remember, they kept asking Jesus, are you, are you going to kick the Romans' butts now? Are you going to be the king? Are you going to... and uh, you know, because they just didn't get it, uh, that Jesus was coming first to suffer. When he comes back the next time, he will be most certainly in the butt-kicking role. <laughs> and, and everything's going to change dramatically on this planet, okay? So anyway, he explains to them that the Messiah had to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And then he says, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, so he proves, first of all, from the Bible that that has to happen, and then he points out that Jesus is the one who fulfilled all of that. Now, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. It's interesting how many times it mentions here prominent women. Uh, it was just a very different culture in the Greek culture, and a lot of these women were like major power brokers in the culture, and many of them became believers and helped to spread the gospel of, of Christ throughout uh, the uh, known world at this time. And, you know, some of the Jews believe, but even more of the non-Jews. So it's, we keep seeing this, that the uh, pagans were desperate for the Christian message. This idea, because these people were very superstitious people, very religious people. Their lives were miserable, unlike Western culture today where people can live their lives in great comfort without God. Uh, whereas uh, for most of life and most people in the world, they don't have that. And to hear of this God who loved them and cared for them and they didn't have to earn their way to God and they could have God's forgiveness right off the bat, this was a radical message. And the fact that people would pray for them and, and when they start praying in the name of Jesus, people would get healed and circumstances would start changing in people's lives. This was a big deal. So the gospel starts spreading like crazy. But verse five but other Jews were jealous. They were always jealous because all these people, the big crowds, were following Paul and responding to the Christian message. They'd get jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house, that's where uh, Paul was staying, Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring him out to the crowd. But when they got there, Paul and Silas weren't there. So when they, they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. I love the King James version of that. What they said is, those who have turned the world upside down have come hither also. What a wonderful thing. Man, if people turn the world upside down, they've showed up here. So, and, and sure enough, the people that hear, heard about Christianity spreading, it's a radical thing. This doesn't even begin to give us the picture of how fast Christianity is spreading and how much it is just 
I mean, it's blowing people's minds. And again, they, people are really experiencing God. And because these people, all their lives have been praying to little statues and different things and, you know, to Apollos and Zeus and all this. And clearly nothing's happening for them. I suppose uh, some of it had some real demonic things and they experienced some strange things. But the, the idea that God, that you could actually talk to a God who would hear you and answer your prayers and you didn't have to sacrifice your children or some other weird, bizarre things. I mean, this is going like crazy. So they're very uh, upset. They're trying to rally these people because the people uh, were feeling their pagan concepts were being threatened. It gets worse as we go along because at some point, some of these cities, the pagans really get threatened. Uh, and justifiably so, I suppose, because so many people are becoming Christians. So anyway, so they, uh, these guys have come here to cause trouble. Verse seven, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decree, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Joseph, Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So they basically arrested them. They put them out on bail. So they're, they're just the beginning of persecution in that area uh, against Christians. Now, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Why? Because the heat was on. <laughs> now remember, they came initially looking for Paul and Silas. And they grabbed Jason and those guys. I mean, you, you better get out of here. Because again, as dramatic as God was moving, the forces that were rising against it were also very, very strong. So as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So they take off. And so they leave Thessalonica and they come over to this little city over here called Berea. Again, they're following the coast along here on his journey. Um, on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. That's what he'd always do. Whenever he came into a city, the first place he'd go is he'd bring the gospel to the Jews. He would talk about this, and we'll read in some of his letters where he says the gospel is for the Jew first and then also for the Greek, for the pagans and stuff like that. At some point, you know, Paul just had it, and I think he just started going to just the pagans and because of the rejection of, by the Jews. So anyway, arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now I was going to stop and think about that. Um, it says that the Bereans were of more noble character because obviously there were some Jews that believed, but most of them got upset and started all these riots and caused us trouble. So they come here. These Jews now are more noble. They are receiving the message. And it says specifically that why, one of the reasons they were noble is because they actually studied the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. That's a noble thing to do. Any pastor who gets mad because you just don't believe everything he says is a nutcase, all right? I certainly do hope that you don't just take everything I say. There are quite a lot of people who do. Uh, you know, I say it, and they just take it as gospel. Pastor Mark said it, so it must be true. I appreciate the sentiment. I appreciate the degree of respect. Uh, a lot of it comes from, uh, again, most of us here in Green Bay uh, and Wisconsin in general come from Catholic backgrounds. 80% of our congregations around here uh, were former Catholics. Uh, one of the reasons I like Wisconsin more than the South, and the, up here you, they have more respect for pastors and elders because we were taught as Catholics to respect the priests, right? And so that's not a negative thing. Now, obviously, some, many of them abuse that. But in the South, there, 
I promise you, are much more disrespectful to pastors and treat them like idiots and morons. And, you know, I got to check out that pastor. He got I almost get none of that here. Thanks be to God. Having said that, whenever I hear someone say, well, I, I, you know, Pastor Mark said it, so it's, it's got to be true, it's a little troubling. You know, that, that should never be that way. Because if I ever get nuttier in a fruitcake, God forbid. <laughs> what do you mean if? No, I'm saying I'm if I start to lose it or start teaching stuff that is untrue. You should not just take anything, everything I say and just because I said it, you need to check the scriptures to make sure that what I'm saying is right. And uh, that's the noble thing to do. And I encourage that highly. And if you ever come back and say, you know what? You know, you said such and such, but there's this verse over here. I don't know if I agree with that. I will smile and I will hug you. I will give you a big fat hug. And that's great. Because there's a lot of things, as we start getting into the theological side of what they taught in the New Testament epistles, some of these things are, of, are very debatable. You know, that's why there's, how many different denominations are there? You know, because they can't agree on every little thing. Most of it doesn't mean a hill of beans. Some, of the, some churches fight over the stupidest things on earth, you know, and they can't get along. You know, there's half a dozen different Lutherans because the Lutherans can't all agree with stuff. You know, there's about 53 different kinds of Baptists. You think a Baptist could at least get along with other Baptists. Apparently they can't, you know, because everybody's got their, well, I think the scripture over here means that, and this means that, and they find these little things, and they go, we don't get into that stuff. We allow people to disagree. All right, now, with fundamental basic Christianity, yeah, we're very strong on that, and uh, if you don't think Jesus is the Son of God, we got a problem, okay? Uh, and most of what we really lean to is what we say in the Apostles' Creed, fundamental things. Other basic things, you know, the Bible uh, being our standard to live by and all this kind of stuff. You come along and say, ah, the Bible's not really important. Yeah, then I got a problem with you, okay? Your fine points of debate over salvation and theology and exactly how someone should be baptized versus not be baptized. You know, I don't care. You know, I'll tell you what I think. You want to do something, knock yourself out. You know, I certainly never get into fights about end time. That's some of the dumbest stuff I've ever seen Christians argue about. You know, because you don't know what's going to happen. Anybody comes along, I know exactly what everything in the book of Revelations means. They're delusional. They don't. They think they know. At some point, I'll get to it, and I'll tell you what I think I know, and I'll pretty much tell you I don't really know much of anything because I don't understand a lot of it. It's enough to creep you out when you go to sleep, but uh, it's very confusing. Anybody who's just, oh, I know exactly how the end times are going to happen, and they got their charts and everything, so it's exactly just, oh, come on. So they got you know, all these people who have different versions of that, and they all fight with each other. And Anyway, I don't have a problem with anybody who takes a biblical stand who thinks they disagree with me on something. I honestly don't. And if you know me and some of you have challenged me, you know I don't have a problem with that. I think that's a noble thing. Uh, what I would just say is, okay, don't let it separate us, okay? There's no reason to let it separate us. Most of it's just piddly nonsense. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't say that. But it just doesn't matter. You know, here, here's an example. One of the major things that churches have argued over the centuries is where you get the idea between uh, uh, Calvinism and Arminianism, which most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. All right? Good. I'm glad you don't know because who cares? 
Armenianism basically is what I tend to think. It's fine if you disagree with me, but most of you do because that's what most churches think, to be honest with you. It's Calvinists that are a much smaller group, uh, which means a Calvinist thinks this, that you are uh, ordained to be saved. It's already written in the books. Uh, it's all said. Or a version of it is that once you ask Jesus in your heart, it doesn't matter what you could. You could turn into Ted Bundy. You could rape and kill people, and, and you're still going to go to heaven. Because once you're saved, you're saved, and there's nothing you can do about it. Or they would say, well, if you're a Ted Bundy, that means you never really were saved. There's all kinds of versions of it, and they argue about this stuff. I tend to think, how about we not kill people? You know, will you still go to heaven? You want to take that risk? I don't want to mess with that, you know? There's a certain amount of fear, the Bible says. Paul talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, this means that, and the, okay, whatever. You know, I just... You know, we're just not gonna have, there are people in our congregation that come from that line of thought. They're hardcore Calvinists, and, uh, you know, it's fine. I don't care. You know, I disagree with you. If you're a Calvinist, how can you get mad? I was predestined to disagree with you. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, I, I would make this argument. My argument, of course, <laughs> you're going to hear my argument and not going to hear theirs, is... Uh, if they're right and I'm wrong, no harm, no foul, right? If once you believe in Jesus, you're set and there's nothing can happen to you, and I say, no, I think you gotta be careful because you could really screw this up. If I'm wrong, who cares? Doesn't matter. If I'm right and they're wrong, holy cow. That's a big stinking deal, right? Now, they would argue that my version puts fear in people, and then you have a fear-based Christianity, and, and that's not healthy, uh, but I don't think in those terms. I don't think people walking around scared. You know, I mean, I, I think we celebrate the grace of God in our lives. I just think you should not kill people. <laughs> Rape and pillage and be immoral and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. If you are a hardcore Calvinist, I love you. Mwah! I'm not. Who cares? We're certainly not going to fight over that stuff. You know, I'm getting into these theological fine lines and things. So anyway, all that to say, if you said the scriptures have a different opinion than me and you want to let me know, fine. And I encourage that and I think it's great. Better that than you just agree with everything you say because you respect me so much. And I appreciate the respect. You have no idea how much I appreciate that from a lot of our people versus the disrespect that oftentimes gets thrown at pastors. Uh, a high degree of respect in our churches here, because I, I just think of our backgrounds. I love and appreciate that. But you never want to just always believe everything a pastor says. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's me. I don't care if it's one of these TV guys that, you know, well, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so on DBN says, so what? You know, the Bible says this. Well, he's, a, I don't, well, he's wrong then. You know, I don't care, you know. So uh, think things through. Just don't go with everything that you hear. So anyway, they praised the, uh, the uh, Bereans for this. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a, prominent, a, a number of prominent Greek women, again with the women, and many Greek men. So, you know, a lot of Jews in this area were believing, but also uh, non-Jews. Now, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, uh, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. So the, the heat followed them. Uh, so the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. Well, they're pretty close to the coast already, but it's, we're talking more down here. Um, 
<laughs> Where am I? Uh, some of them because, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. So now they split up for a bit. Okay? So anyway, so he comes to Thessalonica. He's not there very long. And they don't know how long. When you read this stuff, it looks like everything happened overnight. But it, he was probably there several months before all the heat came on. And he goes to Berea. It's interesting that his first, and we're going to get to it pretty soon here, the next epistle that he writes is to the Thessalonians. And it is really the first writing that he writes to the predominantly Gentile Christians. Remember, the first letter he wrote was Galatians. And he was arguing about circumcision and all this stuff with the, the Jews and, and uh, you know, why we don't have to follow that stuff anymore. When he writes to the Thessalonians, he makes virtually no reference to any of Judaism and stuff like that. And it's really kind of more from our worldview. So it'll be interesting. What did Paul say? Because what happens is he doesn't stay here very long and he probably he eventually winds up in Corinth. And then his first letters then he writes is back to the Thessalonians because he didn't really get to spend much time with them and, and explain things to them. So it'll be interesting as, as we read that. So, okay, so now they want to send him to the coast. They really want to get him to Corinth. So uh, Timothy... Uh, stays here with a Silas. Uh, was it Silas, is that right? Yes, they stay. And then they, uh, it says, but those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left, with, left them, and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible, which you'll read about. He'll talk about these guys joining him later. So anyway, so they get him out and they're trying to get him here. Those two stay back, uh, probably help that church get going still. Again, they weren't here very long because of the heat that was coming on. And they were all going after, obviously, Paul was the big guy, so let's get rid of Paul. These other guys stay back, encourage the Christians, and let's get him out of here. So he comes down to Athens, pretty much on his way to Corinth. So now we're gonna read Paul hitting Athens. Now, Athens is a big city, still a city. A lot of these cities still exist to this day. Athens, you know, Greece, you know, big center of, of Greek culture and stuff like that. So let's read what happens when he gets to Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols uh, because they're pagans. And this is like pagan central here. You're now in, you know, all the Greek gods and all this stuff is on full display here. This is, to this day, we talk of Greek gods and, you know, they still make movies of these characters. I mean, it's, it's a, so he's there and there's all this idol worship, this whole structure of Greek deities that they're into. He's looking at this. He's a, you know, a Jewish boy, <laughs> you know, who comes up in, in, in the ranks of Judaism, becomes a Christian, he comes to this, and it's like, holy cow, will you look at all this? So he's really distressed to see all of this. So in verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue, because that's where you always start, with both Jews and Greek, uh, God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace. Now, this is a new step. So now he's going to the marketplace. Well, not a new, but it was talking about here. He doesn't mention it very often, but he goes into the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, which they liked to do. That was their thing. These are the Greek philosophers that we still talk of to this very day. The city is into this up to their eyeballs. They love to debate ideas and concepts. 
because they're the highly educated people of the day and they have all their theories and stuff. Now, there's two groups of philosophers that he just mentions, the Epicureans and the Stoics. These are the two different philosophers. The Epicurean philosophers were people who just loved pleasure. Anything that was of pleasure was good and was to be greatly uh, chased after. These guys would be the closest to a modern-day American <laughs> because we live in a culture today that celebrates pleasure, that talks about pleasure. You owe it to yourself. You know, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. You know, uh, you need to have the very best hair shampoo that you could possibly get. Sure, you can get something that will clean your hair just as good for a dollar, but better to spend $15 because, by golly, you're worth it. Everything is great, and who wants to wait for anything? We need the best this and the best that, and everybody seeks pleasure and vacations and time off and gigantic big screen TVs, which I have several, and all this stuff, and you know, and we can't just get by. I mean, it, we used to suffer terribly in this country with three channels. Hard to imagine. Those of you young have no idea how much people of my age suffer terribly with just ABC, CBS, and NBC. That was it. And if you were in Israel, you really only got two. <laughs> Until we got a big TV, you know, we could pick up lacrosse and picked up the, the third channel. That was a big deal. You know, today, we, you know, we still struggle. You know. What do we got, a thousand channels today? Somebody wants on TV? Nothing. It's only a thousand channels that you, I don't know what you're going to do. So, I mean, so the Epicureans were just very much a pleasure-seeking culture, which again is the culture that's of, that Western culture is absolutely obsessed by. Interestingly enough, and I don't know why, and I didn't care enough to find out why, but uh, the more popular group of philosophers were the Stoic philosophers who thought exactly the opposite, who rejected the idea of pleasure and stuff like that. Uh, I can't imagine that even going over in our country. But for whatever reasons in Greek culture, I'm sure there's a reason, and again, I didn't look it up because I don't care. Uh, they, they were the major line of thinking, and to this day you'll hear, in fact, I don't know if you've ever even heard the word Epicurean before, but many of us have heard the word Stoic philosophers. And when someone is real serious in our culture and standing against something, they said, well, he was very Stoic in his opposition. You know, so we even use that word in English still to this day. So they were like the major guys for some reason that really appealed to their thinking, probably because they're trying to, again, I'm just guessing now. My best guess is the pagan culture of the day, they want to find God, right? The way you find God is you have to suffer and you have to deny yourself, and you have to, you know, and there's some of that in the Christian culture, but these guys, they have to work their way to find God, and clearly if you gave yourself the pleasure, the gods would not be happy, and the more miserable you were, the more gods, the gods would be pleased with you. Uh, some of that actually seeped into Christian thinking. Uh, some people, even to this day, thinks the more miserable you are, the more God is happy with, and that's not true. Now, the Bible says we should deny ourselves, but that's, you know, controlling ourselves, not being obsessed by pleasures and stuff. We, don't, we, we should be less than the secular culture in which we are. We should not be pursuing pleasure at every turn because it'll destroy you and it'll destroy your faith. Uh, but having said that, uh, the more you suffer is not better for you. I mean, 
I, I remember when I was, some of you geezers my age will remember, you know, uh, if you took medicine and it tasted good, it couldn't possibly work. You remember this? Yeah, these have ads, commercials, you know, that it tastes great, but it still works, you know, because I had to convince people that, you know, if you took cough as medicine and it didn't make you want to gag and vomit, it couldn't possibly work because you had to take stuff that would do, now that's good stuff. All right. So, <laughs> so anyway, blah, blah, blah. So he runs into these guys, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers because he's in the marketplace now because he wants, he's probably engaging these people because he's just, what's with all the idols? What's with all the Greek God things and stuff like that? So he's debating this stuff with them. So, uh, so verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. A bunch of pinheads. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Because at, at some point, you know, and even to this day, pinheaded <laughs> philosophers like to think of new ideas and challenge their thinking, which I guess there's a degree of that. That's good, but some of it's a little crazy. So they bring him to the Areopagus, um, and, uh, you know, what is this? And he's, verse 20, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would not like to know what they mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That was their deal. This was the culture. This is, they, were, they really celebrated, and it's kind of interesting to this day, even those in high-level academia, they still live this way, Right? Oh, new theories and philosophies and open-mindedness and let's consider this, that, and, you know, so at some point it becomes, I would say, intellectually uh, insane. But So anyway, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, now this is really interesting. What we're about to read here is really rather fascinating uh, because of the way that Paul teaches at this point. And by the way, the Areopagus was this hill uh, dedicated to uh, the Greek god of war uh, named Ares, I think is his name. And the uh, Roman god version of that was the god Mars. Um, I don't know if you've heard of churches in America called Mars Hill. There's some of these churches, they're called Mars Hill, uh, the Mars Hill. There's several different groups of them, the Mars Hill Church. And uh, the reason they use that name is what they like about what Paul does here is he appeals to the pagans. So a lot of these churches who are really outward thinking and they don't want to be very churchy uh, like to call their churches Mars Hills, which I think is hilarious because the only reason you'd even understand that is if you understand the Bible in the first place. Anyway, so the Mars Hill. Now, why they use Mars Hills and not Aries Hills, I don't know. Someone knows. I don't care. But uh, the point being is what they're celebrating is the way Paul reaches to the pagan culture. And what's different about this, if you remember, is we've, every time we read one of these guys' sermons, what did they do? They would go back and relive the Old Testament. 
uh, because in a way it was to show your credibility to the Jews that you're talking to. Do you know our history? Every time they opened their mouths, they would go through their entire history. They would quote from the prophets and the Old Testament. And as we were reading, he would reason with them and show them why the Messiah had to come. Now he's talking to pagans who don't know Jack and which is most of the people you will encounter in your life. So in a way, this really is a good lesson for us to take a look at. Because oftentimes when people try to share their faith, brought up in evangelical church thinking, they often quote all kinds of Bible verses to people and say, well, you know what it says in Philippians 25? First of all, they don't even know the numbers. Don't do that to people. Why don't we say numbers to people? They don't even know what you're talking about. Most people in the street, even people who've been through church, I was raised Catholic. I never heard of those numbers. Did you guys ever hear those numbers? Say, John 3.16, what is that a code for? You know, I've had people in our church come forward. What do those numbers mean? What numbers? You keep saying these numbers, and pretty soon it does. Oh, oh, because, you know, they're talking about these Bible numbers, which we try to explain why we use these numbers. Uh, if you'll notice, when I speak on Sunday mornings, I, I oftentimes skip the numbers that Paul said in Romans, and then I just start talking in the next verse. So I try, often, sometimes I do it, but I try to avoid the numbers because people don't know what, I'm, what you're talking about. You got people coming in for the first time? What's the number lingo? So better just to quote or at least when, you're, when I say the numbers, I try to explain what the numbers mean, that kind of thing. Well, so Paul starts preaching now to these pagans. And what's fascinating here is he does not quote from the Old Testament, the Bible, at all, as far as we can tell. Certainly the principles are there. Uh, and in fact, he quotes from one of their prophets to make his point. It would be like quoting a Beatles song to make a point. You know, the Beatles say, you know, all you need is love. You know, and you know, oh yeah, you're right, everybody knows. So, can you talk that way? Yes, you can. You, you talk to people in the ways they can understand, which is the whole purpose. Uh, again, why is a lot of these people who really push this Mars Hills approach to Christianity, they want to make things as understandable as they can. I can appreciate At some point, I think they get a little goofy in the head with it. So anyway, let's take a look at Paul's sermon. So he gets up, all these people, and they say, I want to hear this fabulous new idea you're talking about. Well, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. So in a way, he's being complimentary to them. Does he really think the way they think is a complimentary thing? No. What he's thinking in his head is, y'all are crazy. You got more gods and statues than you can shake a stick at. What is it with you people? That's what he's thinking in his head. But you don't insult people going after the way they behave or going after their lifestyles or this, that. You know, you know someone who's gay. You know, you're not supposed to be gay. That's not the way you talk to people. You know, I know you're cheating on your wife. You're nothing but a filthy adulterer. It's not the way to share Jesus with people. Right. While they're doing all okay, but they don't know God. Don't get mad at people. You know, I don't understand this, you know, hating people that act bad, misbehaving. I'm going to sell cakes to someone who's this. Really? I'd sell them any cake they want. Why not? I charge double. They go, what, what do you care? I don't approve of their life. What do you care? They don't go to church. 
If they were heathens that agreed with you on marriage, what difference does it make? They still don't believe in Jesus. You know, don't be crazy with people. Don't be hammering people for the way. So I know he comes along and he's complimentary. I see that you're all very religious. And I'm sure it doesn't mind he's saying y'all are crazy with a bunch of wild bats. So as, for, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, now, do, does he have any respect for these objects of worship? Does he despise these objects of worship? Does he think they're crazy for doing this? Does he know that God in the Old Testament condemned this idol worship in the sternest of terms? Oh, yeah. Does he say that to any of them? No. I see you guys are very religious. I'm looking at your objects of worship. <laughs> I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. These guys had so many idols, they decided to pick an idol to an unknown God. They ran out of names. They didn't know what to call it. That's me. What are you calling it? Let's call him the unknown God. So Paul said, I, I want to talk to you about this God. You see what he's doing? He's not just insulting him. He's not attacking him. He says, so uh, you are a known God. And then this translation here is really a bad translation. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. Now, that sounds insulting. Uh, what he's saying is, so you don't know the, the God. Translated as the word ignorant because they don't know, but you wouldn't use the word ignorant and talk to people because it's insulting. I know when I want to insult someone, I tend to use the word ignorant. All right? <laughs> or moron. <laughs> Things I shouldn't say, but I've been known to slip. All right. So, so he's not insulting them. Even though you see the word ignorant here, he's just saying, I see that you have uh, an inscription here, the unknown God, so you, so, so you don't know about this God, the very thing you worship. So, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I want to talk to you about this God. So he literally is walking around. He's looking. How can I relate to these people? What can I say that will make sense to them? This is an important thing for us because we as Christians, we are live, you know, People say, well, we're a Christian nation. We were founded as a Christian nation. We used to be a Christian nation. I'm telling you, we are no longer a Christian nation. All right? The principles are all that. I get it, I get it, but most people in this country are not born-again believers. They don't take the Bible seriously. They are Epicureans, by and large. We live in a culture of people who just want everything they want, get mad when they can't have stuff that they haven't worked for, demand the government should give them everything. They think that all of you should pay twice as much taxes so they can sit around on their butts and do nothing. Uh, I mean, this goes on and on. I mean, it, it gets crazy. We live in a very... So don't think, oh, well, this is a Christian... No, 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 back off, Jack. You know, it's not. We are like in the Greek amphitheater where we've got a whole bunch of Epicurean philosophers trying to make sense out of life. You yelling at them, you condemning them, you attacking them is not helpful. It just pushes people away. Well, so, well, I'm, I'm going to stand for what I believe. Yes, stand for what you believe, but you can do it without insulting people. So you want to try and find a way to relate to them. So this is what Paul does. He finds a God to the unknown God. Oh, I know. Let me tell you about the unknown God. So this is what he's going to proclaim to him. The God who, now remember, what did I tell you the gospel is? In the simple of terms, God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixed it. That's the simplicity of the gospel. And this year, I just want us to really stress the simplicity of the gospel. Share that simple message. There's all kinds of ways to share that message. But Paul here is going to, in essence, explain that God made it, we broke it, 
Jesus fixed it. All right, so now the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built with human hands. That's why he's the unknown God. You don't know who he is. And he is not served by human hands if he needed any, as if he needed anything. He doesn't need you to give him stuff. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He's being very kind here. From one man, he made all nations so that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. You know, that's why you guys are Greeks and I'm Jewish and all this kind of stuff. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, uh, though he is not far from any one of us. Why would we have to reach out to him? Because we're, we've broken it. We're, we've fallen short. They understood the concept of being separated from God which in our culture today is the concept most people don't even have. They don't get, they think, it doesn't matter how I live, you know. No, there's a problem. It's called sin. It separates us from God. How to communicate that, that's, that's the challenge. Uh, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. All you need is love. All right, so he quotes from this poet, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, now he's being very liberal and generous here. What did Jesus say? Because this is the idea that we're all God's children. Well, in a sense, as Paul is saying, we are all God's children. People say we're all God's children. Jesus, being much more definitive, said, actually, you're of your father, the devil. <laughs> because we've given into sin and we need to repent of our sin. Well, these people don't need to hear that today. Are you hearing me? At some point, we have to start understanding where we stand. And I'm sure they went the other way to explain all this. But you don't have to give it to people right away all the time in their face. So since this we're all off God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. We're God's offspring. If we are from God, look what we look like. God doesn't look like a stick or a stone with, you know, demon eyes and, you know, half, you know, uh, uh, you know the head of a cow and the legs of a lion. I mean, they had all these different versions of these deities, what they look like. What he's trying to say is, look, even your own poets say we're, all, we're God's offspring. Since we're all God's offspring, clearly God doesn't look like this. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Again, talking about how we broke it. But he now commands everywhere to repent. Why? Because we've broken it. God made it. Men have broken it. For he said a day that he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Now Jesus fixes it. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising this man from the dead. And this way he hasn't even said Jesus. I don't believe he hasn't even said He's just talking about this idea, this Messiah raised from the dead. Well, as soon as they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, Ah, oh, for heaven's sakes, you can't be undead. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject, because they like the idea. At that point, Paul left the council. Now, some of the people who heard him believed. Now, I know a lot of times we think, you know, to get people to believe is really hard, and you've got to make all these arguments. Look, the reality is the Holy Spirit bring, makes us real in people's lives. If you can make clear to them the gospel, God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixed it. And however different ways that you can make that clear to people, something happens. God speaks to them. They, a light of faith burns inside of them. Some people, they might fight it for years and then become 
later. But again, people are one to Christ not because of some clever arguments or debates. And Paul once goes out of his way, which we'll read later when he writes back like to the Corinthians and stuff. Look, this wasn't some cool argument that we came up with. The message of Christianity is incomprehensibly simple. It is so simple. It is so basic. God's love for us. And this idea of Jesus coming as the Messiah, raising him from the dead, being the Lord that we can find salvation from. Now, some people sneer at that, don't want to believe it. A lot of people in your life are like that. Okay, but that's not your job to worry about that. Your job is to share this wonderful, simple message with people as many ways you can, live it out in front of them so that at some point they can believe. So some people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, or whatever his name is, a member, he was a member of the Areopagus, so he's one of the top guys there. Also a woman named Demarius and a number of others. So, uh, so there you have that. Uh, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, which is where he was headed. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila, these are names that we will be seeing later, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome when Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, we just glossed over something here, but uh, how did Paul support himself? He made tents. That's what he did. Highly educated man uh, who could have stayed in his world and done very well, becomes a Christian. Um, he teaches very clearly, as we will read in the epistles, that pastors and, and people who minister in the word should be supported financially by those who receive the teaching and stuff. But even though that's true, and he points out that I have every right to that support, he says, I've never taken it. He insisted not to take it and, uh, and wouldn't take it. And he supported himself, all so that he could make the argument that I never did this for the money. That was his deal. And I don't think he ever relented from that. Uh, uh, there are many people who still do, many pastors who work uh, to uh, not be a burden to the church. My wife and I did this for a very long time. The church now, actually, over the last years, is, uh, they always did a little bit of something, but now it's... Uh, supporting us just because, you know, they really wanted to. Uh, the elders, you know, on our board and stuff said, you know, we need to start taking care of this. Okay, great. Uh, but, uh, but our motive wasn't because we thought people think we're getting, we're only doing this for the money. That's never been my motive. Our motive was just so that we wouldn't be a burden to the church. You know, Paul was more than that. It wasn't that he didn't want to be a burden because lots of people will not take money from the church so they don't be a burden to the church and minister to the church. Uh, Paul literally just refused to do it because he didn't ever want anyone to be able to accuse him that he was doing it for the money. And he went really out of his way to explain that, which we'll run across in these epistles. The way that he supported him and his crew is they were tent makers. That was the uh, modern, you know, that wouldn't be a big business today. <laughs> I don't think anybody needs a tent. Uh, but uh, everybody needed a tent. It'd be more like a used car salesman at this point. I mean, you know, a lot of everybody needs a car. Well, back then, everybody needed a tent. So that's what they did. Fixed the tents, built the tents, made the tents, sold the tents. So he was hanging out and became friends with uh, Aquila 
and his wife Priscilla, and because uh, Aquila was a tent maker as he was. So they both, uh, he says they worked together uh, making these tents and stuff. And every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Then when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, so then they finally catch up. Remember, they left, they left them back over here in Berea, up in Macedonia. So they finally catch up with them. In Corinth, uh, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. So now he's not making tents. But there again, his team is still earning its own money. You know, it's kind of like... Uh, I don't know if it's a good example, but at some point, you know, you got employees who can do the work, so you don't have to do the work. But still, the point was he still didn't take money in offerings, as far as I can tell. So it says here, as soon as uh, Silas and Timothy came, then he devoted himself exclusively to preaching. So who made the tents? <laughs> Silas and Timothy. <laughs> Glad you guys showed up. You make these stupid tents. I can go preach. All right? And uh, so testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah... So just to let you know, I mean, he did still strive to be a full-time minister of the gospel. He just didn't want to be a burden to anybody and not to be accused of trying to take money. Anyway, so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll end it there because I got a whole minute and 17 seconds here. We'll pick it up there and, and see, see what happens. We don't get very far. We just get a handful full of verses into this. He winds up now staying here a year and a half in Corinth. So it doesn't take long. Timothy and those guys come, he connects, he hears, and right away, Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonians because he didn't get to spend much time with them. So it's gonna be fun to kind of look at how he talks to these people very differently than he talked to the first bunch. There's no debate about circumcision or Old Testament law. He just starts talking basic Christianity with these people, which it'll be fun to look at. Uh, he writes the first letter to them and then writes another letter right away. So we will, after a few verses setting up to this, we will go and we'll go all through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, because that is written while Paul is hanging at Corinth. And then we'll come back and pick it up on his missionary journey and, and see what else goes on. All right? Everybody sit with me? Good stuff. All right, God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day. Stay warm on your way home. A little nasty out there. God bless you all watching online. See you later.